Happy Daylight Savings Time, and welcome to episode 83 of the Garage League Podcast. Uh, I am a somewhat disoriented Andy Smith, uh, you hold springing ahead with the clocks and the whole, you know, being an hour early or late or whatever the hell it all means has kind of uh, tossed me uh, off a ledge here, but uh, hopefully my co-host is in slightly better condition and can help me walk through this episode, and that of course is Lyle Kosas. Lyle, how are you feeling today? Um, I guess personally I'm all right, but I'm not really in that much of a better condition because as I hinted to you previously, I have finally been forced, um, by Microsoft to update to windows 10 and get the latest Skype, which is the tool we use to record. They are both awful and I'm ready to go. Um, uh, I'm ready to go to war with Microsoft because it's just ridiculous. Um, I, I mean, granted, I know that like the, um, I think the uh, the theme around them, right, is that they're losing they're losing a lot of um, market share to kind of cooler companies like Apple and Google, et cetera, and they don't want to be associated just with business products like Outlook and uh, Word. Um, but I mean, when you're forcing people to download these horrible operating systems, I'm just I'm very angry, as you can tell. So uh, uh, fuck Windows. You are mad, mad online, capital M, capital O. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. you know. Uh, I think Bill Gates trying to be cool at anything is just a recipe for disaster. So, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things, too, where it's like too many companies um, do too much. They forget what they're really good at at their core, right? And, like, here they are redoing Skype. I mean, just to give you all an anecdote, it took me, like, 10 minutes before we signed on to even find Andy in, like, the latest um, version of Skype. I mean, it's just not intuitive. It's remarkable how hard it was. Uh, so I, I will say some of that probably what like twenty percent was related to the fact that I have like one of the most generic names possible, and there are there are a lot of <laughs> Andy Smiths probably on Skype. But at the same time, I think we can give Microsoft Skype, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I guess Microsoft or MS it's, Skype is a Microsoft product now. I think too. So, yeah, exactly. Right, which is, which is why I'm so angry today. Right, because I, I, the new Windows forced me to download the new Skype. And oh, okay. I can't even, I, I can't even pin it to my taskbar yet. I'm going to stop because this is a hockey podcast and not a shit on Microsoft podcast. But, I mean, it's it's just – anyways. So what you're saying is Jim Rutherford uses Skype, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too true. Well, we're going to um, we're going to P.F. Chang's later, so I'll let you know if we see do, him. Do you think Jim so. Rutherford is – okay, so I, I, I don't mean to go down this road, and this isn't a cheap joke because uh, I, I think that honestly like our criticisms of him are – much more rooted in fact than the sort of uh, bumbling old man stereotype that's often described to him by people trying to diffuse his critics, if that makes sense, that they, they claim that that's what we we stereotype him as and that's why we don't like him or are not as fond of him as others. But I was going to say he probably has a Juno address, right? Like J. Rutherford yeah. at Juno. <laughs> Car- GM at Juno.com or like uh, uh, Hurricane Guy at AOL.com. Anyway, so all right. I'll stop now. No, let's um, just – it, it's either Yahoo or Hotmail. That's got to be the ending. Yeah, so. it, yeah maybe maybe he upgraded to that and then has never has never crashed past it. But um, all right. Anyway, so enough with the cheap Rutherford jokes. But speaking of the uh, the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit on the show this uh, this this fine day. Uh Episode eighty three. This is the Heath Miller episode, as discussed in the last uh, last episode. Two time um, Super Bowl champion. Heath that's Miller, right, so boom. Heath Miller, and, and a fellow uh, fellow who, right, fellow Cavalier. At, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Heath Miller, uh, UVA, one of UVA's best. Uh, UVA doesn't produce many great football players these days, so Heath Miller all the way. There you go. Uh, although quite a basketball school at this point, so you know you got that going for you. <laughs> that is true. Um, um, coming from Florida, when I got here, though, it was. Um, it was remarkable to see how excited people got about football because it's like, I mean, it's like, okay, best case scenario, you're going to go like, you know, seven and six, maybe, <laughs> maybe eight and five or something like that. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyways. Right. We, we only win national championships with uh, with uh, Lord and Savior Tim Tebow in Florida. That's what we care about. Right. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, so speaking of uh, speaking of the Carolina Hurricanes, as we were momentarily uh, or so I should say a few minutes ago, uh, Ron Francis out as GM. Um Kind of a fascinating uh, little little development there with the new ownership. Um, we'll talk kind of about that broadly. I think there are some. Uh, it's a nice entry point into some broader discussions about ownership and involvement and uh, the direction of front offices in the NHL today. 
Um, we're also going to touch on some post-trade deadline stuff. Uh, Eric Carlson wasn't moved, uh, despite us kind of speculating that would be a topic on this show. He, he's still in Ottawa. Uh, there, there is still, however, much to discuss. Uh, there was an interesting article published about uh, on The Athletic by Tyler Dello about uh, Carlson's actual value um, that got into some potentially, I guess, controversial uh, uh, analysis. And so we'll kind of talk about that and the reaction to it. Um, and then we'll just kind of do a broad uh, broad overview of some of the other deals. Tampa Bay made a big one uh, with the Rangers. Um, I guess San Jose and Buffalo getting, uh, but San Jose getting Evander Kane from Buffalo. Um, and I guess uh, we'll do a little bit of assessing the league uh, as we as we come down the home stretch here. Um, Penn's News, quiet trade deadline day. We actually, we made the, a good choice to record uh, after the Broussard deal, but prior to deadline day, as I don't think Josh Juris would have really moved the needle for us. But the other news uh, around that time was that Patrick Hornquist got a contract extension. Um, and uh, <laughs> this this was despite, I think I think I jinxed it when I said that the Broussard deal probably um, you know, eliminated the chances for this happening. But uh, but it did, it did occur. Patrick Hornquist signed for an extra five years after this one. So we'll talk about that. Um, and uh, something that has not happened since uh, since we last spoke is Daniel Sprong coming back. Also, Dan- Daniel Sprong scoring any kind of uh, meaningful uh, any kind of meaningful rate in the minor leagues has not occurred since then. Also, so we'll talk about Sprong's development and uh, touch touch base on him and see again some broader themes about uh, about Penn's development and and all that. Uh, and then we'll of course do the team check in uh, and probably contemplate uh, how they what, what we think about them going forward and see if that's changed since the last time we did that, which was two weeks ago. So uh, that's the show. Uh, Let's kick it off with the uh, Carolina Hurricanes uh, and uh, removing Ron Francis from any kind of powerful position. I do like that they they technically promoted him, even though it's like there's no there's no power anymore. So uh, pretty pretty <laughs> pretty transparent, uh, if you ask me. But nonetheless, uh, so all right, Lyle, I will ask you then. Uh, first reaction to Francis being terminated for all intents and purposes uh, justified, uh, given um, where Carolina is right now. Yeah, I think at bottom it is justified. Um, I know we've talked before about budget limitations and other restrictions on him, um, but you've seen you know other teams and other leagues and in the NHL you know perhaps using a lower budget to their advantage. And again, it's just you know Carolina has not sniffed the playoffs for a very long time. I mean, like by February or March of every year, it seems they're comfortably outside the playoff picture. And, and, and after several years of that, I think there's no other choice than to fire the GM and move in a different direction um, because I don't think any owner or fan base thinks that that's kind of an acceptable level of performance. It's a little bit tricky, right? Because, you know, they typically have good possession numbers um, and, you know, the underlying uh, the underlying um, numbers seem to point in the direction of this is a well-built team or a team that's doing well, but it's one of those things, and we'll kind of talk about this with the Dello article, right, which is that over the actual results over a several-year period really tell a different story, and, you know, if you're talking a 20-game uh, short sample, you know, fine, it's like don't fire Francis because the Canes, you know, just goes uh, because things go uh, – cold for them for say 20 uh, 20 or 25 games but i mean you're talking year after year after year of bad results right and and i think you can you can kind of point to the good possession numbers for only so long long story short i'm surprised he lasted this long that's my that's my hot take at the end of that so but what do you think yeah uh i'm, I'm a little more forgiving of their performance i i think uh it, you know i'll never pass up a chance to kind of mention how bad Jim Rutherford was in Carolina. I think I think Francis took over in a pretty rough time for the Hurricanes and I think was was pretty effective at kind of rebuilding their farm system, uh putting some uh putting a, a long-term plan in place which which really didn't exist for the last uh last 5 or so years I think of the Rutherford tenure. Um at least I I I would cite some of the Hurricanes fans we've talked to kind of as evidence or 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 a, a stronger opinion in that regard. Um and I think uh, they certainly kind of outperformed expectations early in the Francis tenure, and it seems like they're kind of on the right track. Uh, however, I, I think at some point you have to turn the corner, and this yeah, is what his fourth year there, and it looks like they're going to be in roughly the same spot again. Now, granted, I mean, some of that you can the, – the, they're, I think, the top possession team in the league. So clearly they're there, and, the, and, and they've, they've hired some smart people, and, and uh, I like a lot of their players. So doing a lot of things right, but, um, y- y- you know – uh, obviously, uh, some of this is percentages, and and I, I, really, I guess goaltending for much of much of his tenure has been what's what sunk them. And I, I guess they didn't have a lot of offensive talent too. But 
Um, yeah. For as well as they controlled play, they, they weren't winning games and are probably not going to make the playoffs again this year. Uh, and, and, and I think the, from, from what, what the reports are, the, the real rift comes from a, a lack of, uh, action around the trade deadline and in, in an unwillingness to sort of trade future assets to improve the team now. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, without specifics, it's hard for me to say. I, it does make me, uh, a little bit squirrely that I find it a little bit, you know, uncomfortable that an owner would want to, uh, interject himself um, in that manner because it's pretty easy to look for a quick fix. Uh, look, look at like Terry Pagula in Buffalo and kind of what what that was sort of his um, mo when he first took over the team and, and it, it did, really did set them back. I think some of the contracts he gave out and the, the desire to win quickly. Um, at, at the same time, uh, I think there's probably some justification in wanting to trade futures to to win now. I think there there have players that can uh, that can be the the core of a, or at least a, you know a big part of a of a of a successful team and uh, you, you can only build for so long at some point. I do think there has to be a, an instinct that where you, where you go for it and put the emphasis on the current current day. So, you know, I, without knowing specifics uh, I'm not too willing to come out on either side. Uh, I like, again, I do think that um, the brashness of ownership can be a concern, but you know, I think there's probably some, some legitimate uh, justification in, um, you know, Francis's lack of willingness to, to act and in, in immediacy in, in his, in his terms. Yeah, I mean, and and you brought up this point too about how he sort of rebuilt the farm system and added more um, younger players um, to their development, uh, to their development roster, uh, and I think that's all the more reason to kind of like now, you know, once you've spent two, three, four years kind of retooling things to say, all right, it's time to start giving up some future assets just to show management and to show the fans that you're really invested in this. And um, I thought it's interesting you bring up Pagula. Um, I agree that I think owners who insert themselves to um, too aggressively into the day-to-day operations, you know, really risk turning teams into um, sort of into short-term reactionary um, uh, institutions in the sense of, you know, there's just way too much focus on the short-term and not enough on the long-term. Um, but when you look at Tim Murray, who, you know, was in Buffalo for four years, and the first two, I think everyone acknowledged he was just shitting, you know, they were just trying to shit the bed as hard as possible. He only got two years after that, right, before they kicked him out. And I think it was fair to kick him out at that point. So, you know, Francis had, I think, a roughly equivalent time um, in Carolina to sort of do what he wanted to do. So in that sense, especially in today's NHL, um, I, I think it was perfectly fine to move on uh, to move on from him. So, yeah, I, I don't I see. I mean, maybe I might have given him an offseason. I, 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 there's a lot that I like about Francis, at least from where I sit. That seems to be right. uh, that he's a smart guy. And I think he's done a lot of things pretty well, like I said. Um, you know, uh, I don't know how he. I don't know. The trade deadline is necessarily the time to start swapping futures, but you know, at the same time, if it, it, as we discussed, some of the some of the, some players went for less than maybe market value, and there was a chance to add. And and I, I guess the I would say too, I think the constrictions of redundant ownership are different than those of a uh, um, uh, Peter uh, Peter Carmanis ownership, which was really limited by money and, and resources. So. You know, Francis really couldn't adapt. I, I, I you know, it's uh, I, I can see that as being a potential weakness in, in him. Um, and uh, if if Dundon really felt that, uh, you know, that Francis wasn't the guy to sort of take it to the next step, then there there is some there is some evidence that that's justified. I think at this point, right? Let me ask you: if the Canes are not over the last four years, say like a fifty-four, fifty-five percent possession team, which is you know right in the top three, if they're not that. If they're like a fifty or a fifty-one percent team, does this change anything? I think for you? A, I think a little bit. I think um, yeah. What the what the I, and and I will say too that even I think the the first year of Francis's tenure when they looked like they were going to be the roster looked like it was one of the worst in the league. They they even right. kind of outperformed expectations then too. So what I think what it tells me, given kind of the other hires we know he's made, is that clearly. They're, they are doing some some interesting thinking, I think, about uh, how the best way to play and how to control play and all that. Um, so I, I look at those possession numbers as being indicative of someone who is doing some smart things in the front office. Right, right. Um, but at the same time, they didn't win. <laughs> I mean, uh, right. and, 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 and again, showed – I mean – I think I read somewhere that, that he had never made an NHL player for NHL player swap in his whole time there. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so there's that. And I, and I think also, uh, you know, it, it, the, the possession number at the NHL level certainly is a, is a factor. But, I, you know, I think if you look at the, the traits he has made, um, they've been pretty good, you know, uh, yeah, clearly yeah, yeah. geared towards ac- accumulating future assets and, and with all with sort of the, 
the 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 uh, idea to to build up young talent and young assets and picks and whatnot and and win down the road. Um, but you know, I think if you look at most of them, it shows a pretty pretty smart GM. I think. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's hard to disagree with that. He's certainly done nothing that I can um, clearly point to and saying like this guy is is just you know backwards thinking and doesn't really do um, great things for his team. Um, you know, I guess part of my part of my critique really is coming from I know that they've had some bad goaltending there, but I mean, we've seen it in the past in Pittsburgh and I think other teams have seen it that like if you look, I mean, you can get a relatively cheap goaltender who will give you, you know, decent numbers. Um, and, 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 and it's not that he hasn't been able to go out and get that, I guess. It's just, I, I do think there's gotta be something systemic that they're doing, which is, you know, take a look at the Kings, right? I mean, this is, you know, teams with really good possession numbers, but that haven't seen the results in the last few years, in the last few years. And they, and you see that story over and over again, season to season. Um, so, you know, so part of it, I think is, uh, totally right that they're doing some interesting thinking, but I, you know. I'm almost thinking like after year two or certainly after year three, um, you've got to be looking at this and saying, I get it. You know, we're playing the right way. We're trying to get uh, we're trying to outpossess the other team. But um, there must be something systemic. Now, maybe it's quality of players, which is hard to I mean, um, you know, I understand with the budget cap, it might not be uh, terribly easy to address. But um, I think his chief task was to figure out what the systemic thing they were doing was that was leading to um, high possession but low wins and then you know do his best to fix it. And if you're just kind of making fringe trades or acquiring futures or whatnot, you're not really, I guess, focused on that. So in that sense, um, you know, that's why I'm thinking it's okay to move on. Who do you um, – well, You know, you, well, I, 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 I yeah, think you're on. right. You think you're right. And I, I would just say that I think maybe what we're, we're saying uh, is that he's – there, he would probably take around Francis over 20 GMs in the league without quite without hesitation, right. but we'd still, we'd right. still you, you could still justify firing him here if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Do, do you have a name in mind for who you want to replace him? Uh, well, I think this is a, oh, so I think this is a fascinating hire. I think we'll know something about Dundon and, and the reason Francis was fired based mm-hmm. on who comes on board here because I think we'll, we'll yeah. have a sense of so the the, the names that uh, were mentioned yesterday by LeBron are sort of this, the standard AGMs. Uh, Mike Fuda in LA, uh, uh, former Canucks GM or uh, former, former Canucks assistant GM Lawrence right. Gilman, Paul it was, Fenton um, in Nashville, Fenton, and Julian Brisbois in Tampa. And I mean, I, look, I, I don't know necessarily the difference between these four people. Just looking at organizations and and backgrounds uh, and bios and what I know about um, all of them, I think Brisbois seems to me like he's the the top candidate in the league to be a GM. I wish the Penguins had hired him in the summer of 2014. Um, he seems to be incredibly smart. His background is, um, much more on the management, um, much more intellectual than a lot of these ex players. I mean, that's the, the, that's my bias into who I want running a team. So, you know, fully on, on the table with that regard. But, you know, if Dundon is serious about, uh, kind of be having the org that he's spoken about, I think that's, that's a name I would look for. Yeah. Yeah. I I co-sign all of that too. I'm going to take the position that, um, uh, I, I'm too lazy to look up his title right now. I'm pretty sure that Tulski is not an AGM, but it would be nice. I think nice he to... is actually. I think he was promoted, oh, or at least I want to. Or Sorry. there's some promotion he got uh, now recently. My, so now my laziness went out the window. So I, right. I'll, I'll check it out. But go, I'll, go ahead while I while I Google. So yeah. <laughs> no. So I was just looking. So I guess. Um, so they might not have updated the site because it still has Ron Francis as the GM, but it says Eric Tulski is the manager of analytics. Now. Okay. So I, I I take that back. You are correct. No. I, well, I, I mean, granted, we're, I'm reading a site that says. Ron Francis is still <laughs> top dog. So, um, so I mean, if someone has inside info that we don't, then um, then um, please correct us um, post show. We'll give you all the information to get in contact with us. But assuming he that he is manager of analytics, I would really like to see him move into an AGM role. And I think uh, if that happens, no matter their hire, and especially of course if they hire someone like Breesball and you know put Tulski as an AGM. Um, uh, it, it would be incredible, but I think kind of promoting him shows that the organization is still focused on the right things. And, and I don't have any real reason to think that they're going to suddenly scrap everything they've been doing and move for, um, you know, someone like, uh, I mean, like maybe like a Ray Shero type or someone who's a whole lot less invested in this stuff. Right. I have no reason to think they're going to go in that direction. Um, but it would be nice to see if they are firing Francis and saying we really do want to we want to start winning, but we don't want to let go of um, all the good stuff we've been doing. I, I'm I'm quite interested to see what they do with Telski. Uh, it looks like 
a bunch of other AGMs. You've got this guy, Mike Vellucci, Ricky Olchik, um, Brian Tatum. Um, again, I don't know these guys all that well, but uh, if one of them moves up or gets reassigned, it'd be nice to see um, Tolski get a bigger uh, get a bigger role in the team. So um, that's kind of what I'm focusing on. But I agree with all your assessment regarding the names that have been floated. Um, I, I'm just going to go – Brisbane would probably be my top choice. And um, with Fenton, I'm sure he's good, although Nashville isn't necessarily the most progressive. And, and I know that he – I mean, Cheryl came from Nashville, right? So I don't know if Fenton has similar biases or – uh, similar blind spots to share. I think he's so that, an ex player. I mean, like again, doesn't yeah. shouldn't preclude anything, you know, necessarily. Right. But right. I think I think if you're looking for someone with a different background, um, right? You know, yeah. He, I mean, uh, Bruce Ball's a lawyer, Lyle. I mean, come on now, like he has a law degree, so you know, I, you have to support him, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Look, I mean, we need employment, baby, right? Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, but no, I, I think it's. Uh, I think it's an interesting situation. We'll follow it along. I mean, if you are the Hurricanes, though, right, the next guy, I don't think the next guy gets as long as Ron Francis, right, because the retooling has been done. I, I think there's a real, um, real heavy uh, heavy impetus to win now, um, although I'm curious if you disagree. I mean, I No, think I think guy- that's totally right. And quite honestly, I, depending on what – depending on how volatile you find Dundon and def- depending on how – what kind of financial commitment he's willing to make to the on-ice product, it's pretty probably – I mean, it could be among the better avail- – like, I think – could be among the better available jobs in the league right now. I mean, it might be one of the best situations to slide into, right? I mean, right, I absolutely. think low pressure too. You know, it's not like uh, the Carolina media market is the same pressure cooker you'd find in Canada. Um, you know, it seems like uh, they have a, a really good talent base. I mean, you really, if you're an AGM, that's a pretty, I think that, that'd be pretty high on my list. Yeah. No, no, no. I agree. Um, do you want to talk um, Tyler Dello? Yeah. Why don't you, 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 uh, you, you, uh, you, you put this up. on the outline. So if you want to tee it sure. up, that's, that's, that's good with me. So go for it. Sure. Well, so Tyler Dello put out an article um, and I'll keep it at a high level. If you want to read it, it's on the athletics. So you'll need a subscription. Um, but I think largely he was, he was talking about Eric Carlson and he was using sort of the five on five goal differential over, you know, over his career, you know, several, several years. And from what I took, you know, the basic tenor was that, look, you know, Carlson is, is obviously a very good player and he gets held up, I think, in some of the models as being an incredible defenseman. Um, but if you, you know, look just over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games at five on five goal differential, it does show that I, you know, he's probably not as elite, certainly on the defensive side, as people like to say, uh, and, and maybe even overall. Um, and, and, if, and, you know, I, I think there might've been some straw men takes from this, you know, people thinking that Dello just, you know, is, is overrating car uh, is underrating Carlson or that he's, you know, adopting some of the same critiques that a lot of, um, you know, that a lot of blockheads, uh, use when talking about him. But the piece was just saying, look at the results over the very long haul and look at five on five goal differential, which becomes important after say 300 or 400 games. Um, and, and I think was noting that there might be some some holes in, in, in Carlson's games that in Carlson's game that doesn't that don't get acknowledged um, as they should. And the real point was uh, this created, I think, a bit of a backlash on hockey Twitter and some people. I mean, the, the, the same group that I think runs the models. Uh, I mean, you know, there's there's um, uh, DTM about heart. Right. There's there's many elk, um, you know, who does uh, have Corsica. Uh, you know, these are smart people, right? But I think that there was just a bunch of shit dumped on Dello and people thought that he was off base and that, um, you know, just making fun of him, et cetera. I thought some of the critiques were lazy, but go ahead. You, you're well, I guess, I guess we should put out the disclaimer that I, and, and maybe this will translate to the Evander Kane discussion too. There was a great piece, uh, on fear the fin about Evander Kane coming to San Jose and kind of, how do you talk about the work product for someone who has some, some, this is even understating it, but personally ob- ob- object objectable um has a personally objectable history you know has, has said things that uh maybe um or done things that uh aren't necessary it's hard to separate kind of their work product from from that um in any sense and so i guess like disclaimer that like in both these situations uh we kind of acknowledge the the problematic nature of these subjects but we're just going to try to keep it to to uh hockey related stuff um and uh and and go from there um, so I think what was, what, what I, what, what I found, um, difficult about the, the reaction to Tyler Deller's article on Eric Carlson was it seemed like he was making a nuanced argument that, uh, suddenly became not nuanced in its critique and discussion, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I certainly understand what he's suggesting. There is, there is an argument against it and validity in taking it apart, but it suddenly developed and in, devolved into, 
you know, first first generation analytics types versus second generation and you're arrogant. I mean, just like all the stereotypes about this debate, but had in the had in a, a, a even more nuanced and silly level. Um, and so, you know, like there's that. Um, but I, I found it interesting. I found it kind of a nuanced take uh, and something to think about, at least, um, you know, kind of challenging the conventional uh, wisdom about Carlson. And I, I, I think to that end, uh, he wasn't as I read the article, it wasn't necessarily that Carlson is useless or terrible or is a liability, but just that if you're going to be paying him $10 million over the next eight years, I might think about this before I were willing to commit that much money to him. Right, right. No, I, I mean, I, I very much agree with your summary and description of it. I think what's lost a lot in, in current hockey um, statistical debates, or at least current hockey, the, 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 um, the zeitgeist on hockey Twitter, is that there is no nuance. There is no um, challenge, I think, to the predominant way of thinking. And, and I do think that that's very bad. It's bad for scientific inquiry wholesale, and it's certainly bad as applied to how people think about hockey stats. So I thought Dello's article added a lot of value because it was a different take and a different perspective on an issue that's been discussed ad nauseum. And you know, rather than I think engage it in good faith and you know offer and offer um, more reasonable critiques to it, I thought you're right that it just kind of devolved into um, people reciting. I mean, just just kind of reciting the buzzwords that they heard, right? I, I mean, and, and that's what's frustrating about um, I think the general, just the general culture and uh, how people discuss stats, right? You know. And we it's can get probably into Twitter. It's probably Twitter. I think Twitter. Right. Pro, you know, right. it's like it's like the Twitter right. just makes us all dumber and angrier and and more vicious and way less informed. And so and I, I just took that away from it. It was just it just felt like the whole thing got away from everybody, and it was sort of disappointing because I thought it was a an interesting point that I would love to read, or I you know I was interested to read some of the the counter arguments to it. I felt like there was this thread of a really fascinating kind of hockey discussion that just got. Like everything else online, swamped in drama and stupidity. Yeah, no, I agree with that um, as well. It was um, – I thought it was principally frustrating too because I was going to say you can have a separate conversation about the utility of the models that we have right now. And I think that a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the defensiveness that Dello's article triggered – was was driven by the fact that people do want to defend these the new models that we have, whether it be expected goals or something else, and and they want to point to them as having way more utility than sort of whatever you know whatever you characterize Dale's analysis as. And um, I think that itself is a complex discussion. And and I confess that the personalities of the people who defend the models and who and you know the, likewise the personalities of the folks who were slamming Dello for this article certainly affects how I view. Um, the correctness of their opinions or um, the persuasiveness of their explanations. And I, and I think that, you know, on that score, Dello also made some points and he's made these points for a while as to how, you know, to explain these models, there are like six, seven, eight part articles. And sometimes it's very difficult to figure out what exactly is going in and how you're controlling for all the different variables in part there. And, And of course, like I'm happy that folks are posting these public explanations of it, but it's hardly, it's hardly simple or straightforward to understand, and I think that that's where a lot of these models lose value quite quickly. And that's why just basic Corsi 4 percentage and 5 and 5 goals for over a very, very, very long haul uh, retain a lot of appeal because they are such a simple calculation. Uh, and I think it's much easier for people to see their utility, whereas you have these sort of complex models that say Patrick Hornquist is better than Sidney Crosby. And you just kind of like, wait, what? And, you know, there's, you know, it, it's just weird things like that. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think that's I think it's that way. That's a great discussion when we talk about the Hornquist extension, you know, relatively right. soon, you know, I think, uh, I think right. his expected goals are always going to outpace his goals. I think that's just kind of the player he is at this point. So, right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, I guess we can close on deadline deals perhaps. Um, I just, you know, you brought up the Evander Kane thing, so perhaps we can kick off with that. Um, I think, you know, San Jose is still doing very well this year and it's nice to see them improve. Um, putting Kane's personal history aside, which is very difficult, but you know, to the extent we just want to discuss this, um, do you think uh, it was a good trade by San Jose? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they got a player, uh, considering what other players went for, um, I think they got a, a, a for, in terms of what they gave up, they got a, they got great value, uh, strictly in terms of on-ice product. It is somewhat, I find it, I don't know, just somewhat interesting, or, or maybe that's even too light a word for it, that uh, it seems like the NHL teams are conveniently willing to ignore 
violence against women or accusations like those that have been uh, leveled against Kane uh, when it comes to their own players or guys that are making an impact. But as soon as, you know, it's about acquiring someone um, and perhaps even race plays into this somewhat, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, uh, that these things are can, can more easily stick to a player like Evander Kane than, say, Patrick Kane. Um, you know, then when it comes about what what they'll what they're willing to to bring on or pay for, you know, suddenly it becomes much less appealing, you know, and and, and as a way to sort of better their own roster, or it, it's a means to an end almost. Like you know, it's like it's like almost like this these social issues become uh, negotiating ploys and, and nothing else. And that's the only time NHL teams pay attention to them. So I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I, I did have that thought when when the Kane trade went down. Um, I I think brought, maybe maybe I'll just use that as a as a awkward transitioned it to more broadly talking about the trade deadline. It was really odd to me how disparate um, I, it was really hard to pin down exactly what any kind of player's value was worth at this trade mm-hmm. deadline. Like some players went for way less than I expected and some went for way more like Thomas Tatar went for three picks and then Evander Kane. I mean, I guess he's a rental. So there is that, or I'm trying to give another example, but some players went for way less than I would have expected. And I felt like we're at this point in, in, in the NHL right now where there are there are like threads of progressive thinking in every front office, and then there are also some dinosaurs, and and so what you get is this mishmash of like you never know exactly what a player's value is, and you get the mm-hmm. it's really hard to, to to pin down exactly what you think they should get on or assess trades on the market because uh, I think everybody's evaluation techniques are so different, um, and players mean right. so much to different uh, different organizations, and so you get this sort of strange trade deadline where some guys go for way more than expected and some go for way less. So I thought that was sort of an interesting uh, mirror on kind of where, where the league is right now. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I mean, um, I, I thought it was a decent trade for San Jose. It didn't seem like they gave up too much. And again, I think they're in a real position to go deep uh, and to make a push once more. So I, I think Kane on ice can provide some value. I think it also says quite a bit about Buffalo that they're already, you know, shipping guys like him out because it's, it's, you know, I mean, my gosh, it's going to be a while before they really ever fix things there. Um, and, and I was surprised, I guess I know that Kane has other undesirables and, and contracts and things like that that come with him. Um, but, you know, it just didn't seem to me like they got a whole lot for him. So, um, you know, I, I think there might have just been they might have been more eager um, and justifiably so perhaps, you know, just to ship him out. And just get something tangible in return rather yeah, than trying I mean, to get the absolute best deal. He's a rental. And so, you know, I mean, you kind of right. got to, I mean, they're not going to make the playoffs. And so the, the, you kind of right. feel like they, and there's some of that, there's leverage. They had really no leverage in, in trading him. It's just, again, right. talking strictly as an on ice asset. But yeah, right. yeah. So you, were you impressed with the uh, the Lightning? I mean, they, they had the other big deal uh, getting Ryan McDonough and JT Miller. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, getting Ryan McDonough alone would have been a really big, um, a really big uh, billboard alert for me. But, you know, the fact that they also got JT Miller is just really impressive. Um, the Lightning have seemed very deadly for a very long time. And yet, you know, the Penguins have beat them in the playoffs or, you know, they themselves um, have not been able to um, have not been able to make it as far as, as they seem as they seem tooled to go. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to go overboard on this and say that, my gosh, you know, they're clearly the number one favorite. They're clearly going to win the Stanley Cup. I think that's a little bit too much. But, I mean, McDonough and Miller trading for them, they gave up a lot. Um, you know, they gave up other players. They gave up first-round picks. Um, but, I, I mean, the Lightning are very serious about making this push and finally getting that Stanley, uh, and finally getting that Stanley Cup win with this group. Um, so I certainly can't fault them for that. And I think it's one of those things where these are two clearly quality players that are coming back to them. And don't, if, if, if I'm right, McDonough is not a rental. He's got another year left, I think. Yeah, that's what and, – and nor is Miller. I mean, so, you know, both right, have – right, right, right. Year to to stag a pirate Pittsburgh Pirates, they have years of team control. Uh, so yeah, right, right, right. Um, so um, so overall, I think. So well, by the way, I guess um, it might be because Miller's still young. But so his last, I mean, his contract ends right now, and I guess he's going to be what an RFA. I, I think that's uh, right. Yeah. I okay. Yes, that's what yeah, it is. Right. Right. So um, great move for Tampa. I think them and you know they and the Penguins are going to be the top uh, the top favorites in the East. Can they beat the Penguins? Sure. They've got a lot of great players. Um, although in the playoffs, I, I mean, you know, it's Mike Sullivan since coming here hasn't lost a series. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to bet against the team. Um, but, but I mean, Tampa has clearly a brilliant front office, and this ties into what you said about Brisbane. I think he's got to be one of the top uh, AGM candidates, and he'll eventually get promoted. And I think wherever he goes, that team will do very well. So, yeah, I, I, I concur. Um, so. And, uh, yeah. So I actually think Tampa Bay is kind of an interesting uh, segue into the Penguins in the next topic, uh, if if I may be so so bold. Um, 
Please. One of the things that I think you you read in the in the aftermath of of Tampa Bay giving up prospects and and a roster player and picks for the Rangers was that they really have a pretty deep system and that they have a lot of young guys still and that they they've um you know got enough they ha- they also have you know a fair number of draft picks still over the next couple of years. Uh, and I, I think if you were to compare kind of uh, their their choices that they've made um, as they've been contenders uh, with the Penguins, um, granted the Penguins have been in this this window a whole lot longer than the the, the Lightning have. Uh, Tampa Bay has has remained somewhat more future focused, and they certainly haven't won a cup, so perhaps that's been to their detriment. Um, but you know uh, the, uh, the the Penguins uh, this this trade deadline period definitely operated solely uh, in. Um, looking towards the now as opposed to the future. And part of that was this Patrick Hornquist extension, um, which is what, five years? Uh, of course, I had the terms up and then totally forgot. Five years, I think it's five, it's five, five and a half, five and a half, right? Yeah, it's, it's five, I mean, 5.25. Um, anyway, looks like a shade over five million for five years. Uh, so, uh, and I think some of the reason that this is 5.3, okay, so five years, 5.3 million starting next year. Um, I think some of the reason that, that it's almost like this, this that, that, that the Penguins felt compelled to do this is that they have the, – this is a byproduct of not having a farm system that you can replace him comfortably. You know, you almost see like the trickle-down effect of moving so many picks and prospects is that you are then forced to kind of overpay to keep guys um, in your own system because you don't feel comfortable about replacing them. Yeah, no I- – <laughs> There's a lot of thoughts you can offer about this right now, and I think that that's a very good one as well. Um, you know, I guess to take, you know, here's my general temperature on the deal. Um, I, I certainly didn't love it. Um, Her- Hornquist is 31 years old, and signing him for five more years seems a little silly to me, given the kind of game that he plays and the fact that he's going to wear down so aggressively as time goes on. Um, so, you know, that was one of the first things that I think rubbed me the wrong way about um, about this uh, about this um, particular deal. Um, you know, the other thing I think is it's emblematic of where I think some of the blind spots lie with this team. Um, you know, Hornquist gets uh, a lot of positive attention, I think, both in the media and seemingly from the coaches and from management. And I think this kind of deal for a 31-year-old is a big sign that they are committed to him for the long term. I mean, perhaps he even retires as a Penguin, right? Um, and, you know, there are other productive players on this team who um, – who, for some reasons, you know, uh, for for reasons that might be difficult to discern, you know, perhaps don't get as favorable treatment. And you know, I'm thinking of like the summer negotiations with Connor Sheary uh, and some of the other younger players and whatnot. And um, you know, stuff like that uh, is a little bit hard for me to explain. I know that Hornquist is a good player, but I think you know, in, in some of our conversations with him, Ryan Wilson pointed this out. You know, he's really just a um, he's really just a power play specialist. I'm looking right now at, at five on five points per sixty for this year. Yeah, um, and he's at one point one three, which is behind guys like Ryan Reeves, Carl Hagelin, you know, Connor Sheary, Brian Rust, um, you know, uh, et cetera. And um, I mean. Just someone like Connor Sheary, I think, who doesn't get his favorable time and his favorable line mates, uh, you know, is scoring at a much better rate. And I, I can't I don't see his five on five production getting better as he ages from 31 onward. So long story short, I don't really love the term. I could deal with the price. You know, if it was like two or three years at this price, I'd say fine because, um, you know, people like him, I guess. And he does provide value on the power play. But the five year investment just is really hard for me to explain. Um, and, and, and I, some people think he's magical. I guess I just don't see it. So, so, uh, this, this is like a over a little bit of an oversimplification of the, the regular, um, uh, even strength points that, that you just mentioned, but do you know where Patrick Hornquist, uh, how many even strength goals he has this year? Oh gosh. Well, I have not looked this up, so let me guess. Okay. Uh, it's, it's more than last year when I asked this question, <laughs> but yeah. is it four? It's, it's eight. Um, Eight. which, okay. which ranks, uh, b- between Riley Sheehan, who has nine, even strength goals and mm-hmm. Carl Hagelin and Oli Mata who have seven. Uh, and this nope. is, this is with, um, a considerable number of minutes played with, uh, Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. So, right. um, you know, there, there's that, I, I think my, my issue with the deal. So, you, you know, the, the, the reaction to it was, uh, this is, you know, uh, 
he'll be great for the next two or three years and the last two will be bad. And so, you know, that's the trade-off you make and I guess it's worth it and it's still risky, but that's worth it because he'll be great. I, 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 I where I can, am concerned is the, the contention that he'll be good for the next two or three years. Um, right. as, as you just so illuminated his, his even strength offense isn't great. Uh, his expected goals are still wonderful, but I, I think we're at the point now where we can recognize there's going to be a gap between what is expected of Patrick Hornquist to score and what he actually is going to score goal-wise or what kind of goals he's going to contribute to. Um, you know, uh, I would also say, too, that you that there, there clearly is a locker room component to this. Like, you know, I think beat writers who um, are there seem to think that he is a presence that that is important in a locker room. And I, I don't doubt that. But I think uh, that it's really easy to overweigh that in these uh, in these negotiations, as we've discussed many, many times on this podcast. I also think uh, if we're just talking about Hornquist as an entity and why people so uh, revere him, I, I think he's a pretty interesting proxy for the shift from the Cheryl Bilesma era to the current one. Uh, mm-hmm. And that if you were going to have stakes in the Rutherford hire being good and the change in the direction of the organization and wanting to you know, be optimistic about that, that was really the first big trade that this group made. Uh, and I think that he kind of comes to represent uh, this group being smart and the, the changes being good and this being an, almost like a new era of Penguins hockey or something. Uh, and so I think he often gets described some of those characteristics. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he even the style of play he has uh, is a departure from what people felt like the team was playing, um, playing like in sort of the, the, the last days of Dan Bilesmo and Ray Shero. Uh, they didn't have someone that kind of fit the the, the stereotypes of Patrick Hornquist's game. And so uh, I think it's really easy to kind of put all that um ancillary stuff on him without really looking at some of the the raw data and realizing you know the the risks in giving a deal like this i will also add you know we've talked about uh, the young players that the penguins have you know that can be good and, and can continue to get better you know jake gunsell kind of sherry um you know simone um you know you're looking at these guys and and I'm going to look at all strengths, right? So including power play, which, you know, will highlight where Hornquist does his best work this year. And if I'm sorting by goals per 60, even at all strengths, you know, Malkin just blows everyone out of the water. Almost, you know, almost two, 2.0 goals per 60 um, at all strengths. And then it's Phil Castle and then it's Hornquist at 1.16. Gunsel is right behind him at 1.05. And then Connor Sheary is two slots down at 0.9. So obviously Hornquist is a little bit better than those guys, but given that they're also not getting the same power play opportunities than him, I have a hard time thinking that that differential is really all that meaningful. So so I'm just looking at 31-year-old Patrick Hornquist, including power play time, is certainly scoring a lot of goals for this team. He has a good um, you know, goals per 60 rate, but it's it's really not that different from Jake Gunsel, Connor Sheary, uh, and even Simone. And I just look at it and say when you have young players like that, why are you going to invest so much money for so much term in a guy like Hornquist, um, you know, for all the reasons that we've already discussed, right? So, I mean, it, we, I, I don't think you even have to rag him just for five and five production. I think even looking at the full picture this year, you know, he, he's certainly better, but it's really not all that different, um, you know, from from someone like Jake Gunsel. And, um, you know, I, I, yeah, so um, – I just haven't heard a great defense. I mean, I guess some people might say you're just paying for the cup wins because he was an, in, an, an integral part of those teams. And I don't know. You know, um, I think folks will probably value him for other things that we won't value him for. And maybe there's something that I'm missing. But I have yet to hear what I find to be a compelling defense of the length of the extension. Um, so you hear you know, these comps. You get these comps thrown out, too, like uh, like right. someone like right. Johan Franzen or, or Thomas Holmstrom. And, you know, I. I think individual comps are are problematic because there's a lot that that, that goes into uh, any kind of player, and I, I think uh, you know certainly there are best case scenarios. I think Justin Williams might be a best case scenario for Hornquist uh, if mm-hmm. you're looking at somewhat similar style. But again, you know he's I think Williams' out, out offense at even strength is definitely outpaced. Where I should I should I shouldn't say this without without double checking it, but I, a quick look it looked like Williams is. Was superior to this point that uh, that Hornquist is in his career. I, I just I think I, it seems to me like a lot of the arguments come quick, too quickly back to intangible stuff. And again, on yeah. the it's going to be good for sixty percent of the deal and then bad. But I I, I find that that to be a little bit uh, misleading. Um, the certainty in that is not not something I share. I think the comps are silly too because there's so much um, context that goes into figuring out 
you know, whether the comps are valid, right? I mean, part of part of my issue with Hornquist, right, is team specific. You know, given the young players that we have, given his age, um, given the direction the team is heading, um, you know, perhaps Hornquist and Franzen made sense for, you know, Detroit at that time because they didn't really have the same young players waiting to play or because they were in a different position, you know, salary cap wise or perhaps their, their cup window was closing faster. I don't know. I still think the Penguins can win, you know, two, three, four more cups because Crosby and Malkin have a lot of great hockey left. Um, and I think if you buy that and you buy the fact that there are some good young players waiting, I just don't know that it takes, I don't, I just, it's hard to see why the five years in him, um, you know, is justified. So, so again, I I think to your point about comps, it's just, it's gotta be team specific. Um, and, um, I guess I'm still waiting for, I'll probably never find a compelling argument, even if there actually is one to be made. So I confess I've got blind spots too, but that's, yeah, um, I mean, and I will, I will confess too, if we're just putting this all on the table that, you know, some people find Hornquist's gritty play aesthetically pleasing. I I don't, I don't enjoy watching him and, you know, whatever he does well mm -hmm. does not, does not necessarily appeal to me. I find the, uh, the, the relitigation of that trade, the Neil, I don't want to I should say, I don't want to relitigate the Neil Hornquist swap which included Nick's balling, by the way, but I, 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 I kind of found the justification for it a little bit misguided, even if it worked out okay. So, you know, there, I, I, I think some of my hesitation, full discretion probably comes from some of that. Um, but, you know, I just, I, I think uh, for all that I can critique Rutherford, I think he has not really, he's really avoided contracts like this. You know, I think there was, uh, Benino was kind of a landmine last summer in a similar, similar fashion. Um, although granted, Hornquist has been much more productive, but uh, Rutherford has really kind of avoided, outside of I guess Flurry, uh, signing um, members of this team to long-term deals or or pro- potentially problematic contracts. And I think this is the first one where it, where it really, I, I think uh, the risks just far outweigh whatever benefits you'll get from this uh, at this point. So I don't know. Right. I mean, you and I would have traded Hornquist in the summer of what 2016 if we were in charge. So I mean, you know, maybe oh, we're not yeah. the right people I, to be. I mean, <laughs> I would have. Yeah, I would have called Patrick Wap and said, you know, what do you got? You know, yeah. I mean, we're going to do a Duchesne for Hornquist one for one. I mean, you know, um, so no, and I agree. And also just to make sure that, you know, we're not accused of taking too narrow a view of this here. I look at the goals per 60 stats primarily because I think everyone agrees and, and certainly his play bears it out. Like that's what he's doing. It's not assists. Um, I know that he has good possession numbers, although it's very hard to, I think, separate that from the great teammates that he, you know, so usually plays with. Um, but you know, really like his value to this team is goal production. Um, I don't know that there's a good argument to be made that like other stuff he's doing is some, you know, he's certainly not carries. It's certainly not passing. It's certainly not zone entries. Um, you know, Ryan Wilson, I think says, you know, talks about this and, and point to some, points to other data on that front again it's it's really just going to be goal scoring so that's why i think these contracts his contract should be evaluated looking at the gold metrics um i will um i will close andy by pointing up to you i think we've talked offline and maybe even mentioned on the show before but you know there seems to be some suggestion you know i think perhaps both in the media or just in the way that um, you know, the team is structured The Crosby and Malkin aren't really thrilled with playing with Hornfist. And you might think that this is, you know, rank, uh, rank speculation and it's not worth listening to. But, um, if you buy that, does this contract seem sillier or do you think it leads to a problem in the team? Or, or do you think that, you know, I, I don't know that just enough cups over time will sort of mollify any concerns that, uh, teammates have. I, I so. think that's, that's probably, I don't think it'll lead to issues within the locker room or anything. I think, I think if anything, uh, if, if you can't play him with, with, uh, Crosby and Malkin, then it's in that it's a really problematic contract because, uh, right. you know, uh, I don't think he's quite capable of, of doing enough on his own to anchor a line. I, I mean, this, okay, this is admittedly a small sample, but I'm just kind of going through the, the with or without use this year with, with Hornquist and, and, uh, and Crosby and Malkin. So, uh, he only has 147 minutes of, of time on ice at even strength without them. The goal four percentage with just Patrick Hornquist is 38.46%. Um, so that's correct. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's actually has a decent possession number. It's around 53%. But, you know, I, I think he's, he's uh, clearly, it's funny. I think he clearly is most useful playing with centers that can kind of create zone entries and, and uh, generate offense and, and, uh, and, and he can sort of be there to finish hypothetically. Um, but, uh, but, you know, if, if in fact the two centers aren't thrilled with playing with him or it's not their ideal choice, then I, I think he's, he's much more limited in his impact uh, on a line by himself. Yeah. 
No, I, I very much agree with that. So I guess we'll see what the future holds. Um, we've been wrong before. It certainly wouldn't be the first time. Watch that Hornfist has a career year after this, and everyone just loves him to death. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that's the luck that we have in evaluating this contract. So, uh, so uh, to, to put this out now, do you think – do you need three years of, the, of this being good, you know, r- relatively a uh, value contract for it, to, for it to make sense too? Like what's your what, – what do you – what's your sort of threshold for this to be a successful extension? I mean, it's hard because, uh, you know, I need more than two. I think any five-year contract, you need more than two good years to justify it. You would need – I mean, I'd like to see three and a half to four good years, right? But I I, I include the caveat of, um, of, look, I mean, if this team wins another cup this year or they win another cup in the next year or two – um, it's just going to be hard to critique almost anything, right? Not only about this trade, but about how the team was built and how it's performed. So I'm cognizant of that fact, you know, that Hornquist might give you one good year out of this contract. And if the Penguins pull off another cup win during this time, it's just not going to matter, I think, right? Yeah, um, that's probably, so, probably at, le- at least for a little while. And then when he's, uh, you right. know, uh, we're in the, the next slide joke that about this that that it's actually a four year contract with uh, with uh, the the compliance buyout after the the lockout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, like, look, if if I'm in a vacuum of any five year contract, I need four good years, uh, three and a half to four good years to really make it worthwhile. Um, but you know, things have been so unpredictable about this team um, that I think you know. Just an, another cup win will, you know, just just nuke any discussion about whether this contract was a good deal or not. So, um, so yeah, I guess uh, I guess uh, Senor Sprong, shall we? Uh, yeah, let's talk about Dan, Danny Sprong. Yeah, Dan, Danny, Danny Sprong. That's right. Good, yeah. good locker room nickname. Then, that's Danny right. Sprong. Sprongers. Yeah, right. Sprongers. Um, twenty years old, five points in twenty six NHL games. Um, he's done really well in Wilkesbury this year. Although, as you flagged earlier in the show, certainly not since he's been returned. But his overall, his his points overall are almost at a goal. I'm uh, not a goal per game. That'd be incredible. But almost a point per game with a lot of goals. So, you know, um, um, you know, there are large. Um, there are. I think there's a large sample that suggests, you know, development is going well. Um, but my question is, what do you make? I think of his career thus far. I know that. He got, I mean, you know, he certainly, I think he got his first game under Mike Johnston. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk immediately after the Penguins drafted him that he was going to, from certain edges of the internet, that he was going to be a wonderful replacement immediately for James Neal um, because of his work in a preseason game. Um, but um, none of that's happened. You know, he hasn't gotten any real time. His performance in the NHL has been underwhelming. Performance in the AHL has been very good. Are you satisfied with where he is? Or do you, are you disappointed he hasn't had more NHL time thus far? Um and um, and I guess what do you make overall of where Sprung is? I guess given past experience with uh, certain prospects, I'm a little concerned that that uh, I think he does he does some things very well. I think there are certainly weaknesses, and I just feel like as is a common problem in the NHL and has has been flagged by by many observers of the Penguins, it seems that uh, his weaknesses get uh, overplayed and overemphasized. While the weaknesses of somebody like a Carter Rowney or Tom Kunakel, who uh, maybe is a little more responsible defensively but lacks any kind of offensive instincts or abilities, um, gets forgiven. Uh, that the shortcomings of a player like that are are much more um, acceptable to to NHL coaches and and this NHL coaching staff in Pittsburgh. Um, I I have some serious doubts given kind of what uh, the the given kind of the, the let's take like Jake Gensel or or even Connor Sherry. Guys that have stuck in Pittsburgh for an extended time, uh, it hasn't been this kind of yo-yo thing that we've seen with Sprung, where um, he's he's. Uh, uh, I, I I think that that everything you heard uh, leading up to his call up uh, earlier this year was that they wanted to call him up for good once he came up, uh, and he was here and he played okay. I mean, I think he started off pretty well and then you know maybe fell off a little bit, but you know I think was driving play fine and had found some success with Sidney Crosby. And then suddenly he was scratched, and now he's back in the in the AHL and his offensive production. I, I imagine there's some confidence issues that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, it could just be streakiness. I mean, there, sometimes we ascribe too much to just general, um, you know, luck and percentages. But I have some serious doubts that that he's in the team's long term plans. And I don't know if the coaching staff doesn't like him. I don't know if if they are again too committed to to whatever weaknesses he has versus what I. You know, we had Bill West on, geez, like almost two years ago at this point. And he, he, there was all this talk about how Sullivan was really um, 
good with young players and much more willing to accept young players. And, and Bill's line was like, yes, but they have to fit a certain prototype and be, be, you know, solid all around. And he kind of flagged that sprung that was not sprung. And here we are two years later and it looks like that's, that's continued to be an issue. So uh, right. I could totally see him being traded for, for other, other players at this point. Right. Um, my, um, my red line is if he's not playing full time uh, next year, then I think, um, there's clearly been some bumps in his development and the team might look um, for other alternatives to get rid of him. Um, you know, that, I think next year is kind of where it's at, right? I mean, we've talked plenty of times in the show. I, I think when you look at all the graphs and you look at all the data that shows, you know, peak offensive production for NHL players, putting aside Sidney Crosby and generational talents, it really seems like it's over by 26, but, you know, by about 26, 27, the players' best offensive years are behind him, Right. So I think for Daniel Sprong to really become an impact NHL player for a long period of time and to kind of extract maximum value from his offensive peak, if he's not getting full-time play next year, I don't necessarily know that we're going to be using him as optimally as we could. And I also think, too, if he's not getting full-time next year, look, I mean, you had guys like Ryan Reeves, you know, Greg McKaig, et cetera. It's not like the bottom six is just you know, full of incredibly talented players. Um, I think there was room if they wanted to make room for him. Um, but for whatever reason, they didn't make room for him, and he's been in the system for several years. Um, so for me, I think full-time play next year is kind of what I expect. And if he's not getting that, then I think that there are, you know, whether rightly or not, there are perceived, um, you know, fundamental issues in his play that might stop him um, from becoming sort of a regular player for the Penguins. Um and uh, I think that in itself would be a remarkable story. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. And, you know, maybe Sprong will become a regular player next year and things will be fine. But, you know, I, I mean, Rutherford, I, we talked, I think, almost last episode about this, right? You know, things he came here to kind of stop trading away futures and try and start rebuilding the farm system because that was a problem with Ray Shiro. Not only has that not happened, but we really haven't he really hasn't drafted Right, any great young players that have made uh, that have made an impact on the team. All of the good young players, whether it's Shiri, whether it's Gensel, you know, they come from the prior regime. So um, I think if Sprong doesn't pan out, you know, Rutherford will have been here for three or four years and not really have a lot in the way of drafts to show for it. And, and I think that in itself will be a story, although the story might not matter if the Penguins win a cup again. Um, but um, that's kind of where I'm at. A Andy, I do want to end with you because you teed this up as well. Um, Sullivan has a a ton of positive attributes as a coach and he's clearly doing a lot of right things but we have talked previously about how he seemed to give young players that he coached in Wilkes-Barre a lot of leeway on this team but have have you seen or can you say that anyone has seen a similar um a similar approach to young players that he didn't have that minor league connection with no, I mean, some of it I think is probably what you talked about earlier and that I'm not sure there's anyone with pedigree that's been really worth. I mean, I guess he's kind of given Dominic Simone um, some some ice time and, and been a little more liberal in using him, although I think he fits kind of the, the all around, uh, the all more, more so of the all around skill set than, or at least I shouldn't say that necessarily. I think he's probably stronger in defensive areas, I guess, or or the little quote, quote little things than Daniel Sprung might be or whatever, the stuff that coaches seem to really be obsessed with. Um but, you know, no, I don't think uh, when when he was first here and you saw those Wilkes-Barre guys kind of leading the charge as the team tore it up down the stretch, uh, there was maybe some hope that he would be this great developer of young talent. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure that we necessarily have evidence to suggest that at this point. Um, you know, I think he's probably pretty closer to the norm than than might have been expected. And, you know, I understand that expectations change and this is a team that is really cup robust. And so the, the desire to break in or the willingness to be patient with young players is somewhat... Uh, mitigated by that. Um, so maybe under different circumstances, he might be uh, different. But I think right now, you really sort of do have to question whether or not uh, he can, he's necessarily uh, so adept at bringing along and, and, and maybe understanding a player who's as complex as Sprong, you know, is getting the most out of someone whose strengths and, and weaknesses are uh, so in line with uh, with what, what he's shown so far. Right. So um, I, I should ask you this too. Uh, I've been thinking a little bit about what, a, what about if in fact they are they're really done with Sprong or 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 whatnot. I I I think in a, in some ways I would be happier if they traded him this summer for another young future player. Maybe I don't know. I don't want to say like less skilled or anything because I think that that is but but an a, a equally regarded prospect maybe that better fits kind of what they're comfortable with playing. Uh, maybe. Uh, he still makes an impact, but in slightly different ways. Like I don't want to undersell Sprung, is what I'm saying. You know, like is he just just to get a 
a first round pick that maybe is safer or a stay at home defenseman or something. And that would be stupid. But, you know, I, I feel like if, if in fact, uh, they are realizing that Sprong doesn't necessarily um, likely have a future here or there, they have some concerns. I would hope that they trade him for futures or, or, you know, equally young talent before they totally destroy his value. Kind of like Derek Pouliot. So I was just going to yeah. say, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I worry that that's not going to happen though. Um, because, um, you know, I, I mean, he's got enough NHL time and he's done well enough in the AHL where I think he's made a case to kind of stay here long term. Um, and, and I wonder that I, I could see the team just being comfortable kind of yo-yoing him between the majors and the minors for a decent amount of time, you know, given the given the numbers he's put up in the minors. And I will say, too, on a positive note, before we sort of conclude with the general team update, um, I, I haven't done the I haven't looked directly, but I think his numbers in the AHL right now were pretty similar to Connor Sherry's last full season in the AHL before he came up, right? And, and, and you and I, several years ago, talked about that and said we'd love to see Connor Sherry get more work on the team because good AHL numbers tend to be the best predictor of NHL success. And I think Connor Sherry has worked out quite well on the NHL stage. And I think, if anything, that is by far um, – the best sign that that not only will uh, Daniel Sprong become a good NHL player, but that the team can give him a chance. Um, So so that's my positive concluding uh, parallel. Uh, Daniel Sprong is Connor Sheary, although – I don't. I mean, wasn't Connor Sheary who we thought Daniel Sprong was, or yeah, vice versa? That, I forget. I Andy. certainly, I certainly know some people who held that opinion in the uh, the fall of 2015. So you know, right? Yeah. That's right. Um, so, anyways, it's a big year personally, professionally for for for, for both Daniel Sprong <laughs> and Connor Sheary. That is very true. Um, I don't have anything grand to say on the team level. They're they're humming along. Things do well. They'll make you know things are going well. They're going to make the playoffs. Um, couldn't they win the cup? I, I think absolutely. Uh, they won the cup, I think against, you know, certain odds last year and they seem to do it with relative ease at times. So I see, I could see them doing it again this year. As I touched earlier, I think Tampa by far will be their biggest, um, their biggest, um, competition. And they seem, Tampa certainly seems tooled, uh, to give the Penguins a bit, uh, a, you know, a run for their money. So I go ahead. Well, yeah. So I, I actually, uh, regard to your, I think Boston too. I think who, I, and, and, you know, uh, listen, they, they, they've played the Leafs pretty well this season last night, notwithstanding, although I think that was a little more about bounces than necessarily, uh, they, they think they controlled play pretty well. Uh, I, I think the, the, that anybody who comes out of the Atlantic is probably the toughest team that they would face, uh, in the, in the playoffs. Right. I think that's also fair too. I guess I'm just getting a little bit, um, um, a little bit uh, wide-eyed given the trades that Tampa made at the deadline. Um, but um, but I agree. Uh, I think that you know the Penguins will probably have their hands full with either of those teams, and um, we'll see what happens. Uh, there's no one else in the East, I think, who I have a particularly – who particularly scares me. Um, so I'm kind of focusing on um, those two teams in the Atlantic right now. But other than that, general, up, uh, general update aside – uh, I I feel like I've exhausted uh, my hockey discussion for the week. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's that sounds like uh, where I am too. I, I will point out too. I think uh, some of their playoff success will really come down to Matt Murray's health. I think that's probably a, a huge component of it. He, you know, granted, uh, he actually has a lower save percentage than both Tristan Jari and Casey DeSmith for the season. Although Murray, I think, has played much better since uh, getting coming back from. The personal issues his father's death. Um, so there's there's that, and you know his track record kind of speaks for itself. Although I, I want to say this too, it's kind of interesting that there's a lot of hand wringing about the Penguins' backup goaltending this season. But uh, so it, if you add uh, Jari and DeSmith's numbers together, they actually have a higher save percentage this regular season than than Mark Andre Fleury did last year. So <laughs> I think that's kind of funny, um, given uh, given some of the criticisms of the the way the roster is built. But Anyway, yeah, I think playoffs largely uh, dependent on Matt Murray's health. So we'll see what uh, what transpires. Um, with it's not, that, it's I not am, too late. Yeah, go ahead. It's, I was just going to say it's not too late for Flurry to come back. So that's what I'm holding out hopes for. So you know, I mean, still still got that candle burning for Mark Andre Flurry. You know, that's that's what this team needs. Um, I light it every night. Yeah, so. I, I would hope so, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a calendar that counts down how many days until he's a UFA in uh, in Los Angeles. <laughs> Sign in uh, yeah, that's gonna be fun sh- that's gonna be fun when that happens the rumors leading up to that you know geez the push to bring him back as the backup right can you <sighs> uh, can you sh- can you share that calendar with me on google uh, yeah, i'd no appreciate problem. it now just yeah absolutely forwarded it to mine um anyways folks thanks for listening right now this is the heath miller episode it's in the books um and uh, we hope you'll tune in next week i don't think we have a penguins 84 so we'll have to brainstorm and figure out oh maybe it'll be antonio brown was, uh, yeah yeah I, yeah 
I was actually thinking older school. I forget what number Randall L wore. I think he I was 82. Was I want to say he was 82. We missed the Randall I think L. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think a higher it. quarterback rating in the Super Bowl than Ben Roethlisberger. You know, one pass for one <laughs> touchdown. So, yeah. Uh, uh, okay. On that note, yeah. we're out. Right. <laughs> no, that's it. Can't, uh, can't talk that. Right. Talk to you next find, time. <laughs> that's right. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Lyle Kosis. Um, we got the show's account, Garage League Pod, at Garage League Pod. Email Pod at gmail.com. And if you want um, funny tidbits like we just heard from Andy, I think you could find Andy on Twitter as well. That's right. Yeah. For all your Antoine Randall L statistical and comment uh, commentary, uh, find me uh, at that Andy Smith. Yeah. Anyways, I'm going to go have lunch with Kimo von Olhoffen. So I hope you have a great day today. All right. I'll see you, bud. Bye-bye. Stop me.